You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. section of the Bible with which you may not be very familiar. Let's see if I can get this microphone on my side today. There we go. We're going to be in Ezra, chapters 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, turn to uh, uh, Ezra, the book of Ezra. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, the reading will begin on page 362. And we're going to read the first four verses of chapter 1 and then all of chapter 3, which is a pretty long reading, so I'm not going to ask you to stand. Ezra, chapter 1, verses... 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, the Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. 
And when the, pre the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, this is probably very unfamiliar material to most of us here today. Help us to understand it and help us to see how it directly touches on our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tomorrow begins the new year, and that means many of us may be presently setting some New Year's resolutions. Goals for self-improvement for 2024. Apparently, the most common resolutions this year are losing weight, saving money, pursuing career advancement, and spending less time on social media, to which we can all probably say amen. Now, I hope that you succeed in whatever resolutions you make, but unfortunately, the truth is that New Year's resolutions are one of the greatest evidences that we can accomplish very little under our own power. Apparently only 9% of people keep their New Year's resolutions throughout the year. And only 36% manage to make it through January. In fact, about one in four people quit the whole thing by the end of the first week. And so the truth is New Year's resolutions usually lead to very little lasting life change. But as we start this new year, I wanted today to give you something that can change our lives. I want to give you the word of God which will help us get where we need to be, maybe not on the scale or in the bank account, but where we need to be spiritually by pointing to some truths that can change our perspective about God and our lives and our priorities. And if we believe these truths, friends, and if we remind ourselves of them again and again, I think we will find that they do dramatically change our outlook and how we live. And so today... To find some of these truths, we're going to take a break from our study in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to turn to this little book of Ezra in the Old Testament. Now, Ezra is a book about Israel experiencing a new beginning after languishing for decades in exile and slavery in Babylon. And today we're going to see Israel's new beginning in Ezra chapters 1 to 3, and I hope this will help us with our new beginning here in 2024. Now, today we're going to consider three points. First, God is sovereign and faithful. Second, we must respond to God with faith and faithfulness. And third, this means that we need to prioritize worship in our lives. Let's start with our first point. God is sovereign and faithful. Again, if you've got a Bible, I hope you're turned to Ezra 1. If not, it's right between 2 Chronicles and Nehemiah. So go ahead and find it, and if that doesn't help you again, it's on page 362 in the Seatback Bibles. But as you open to Ezra, let me give you a little background to this book. Way back in the days of Joshua, God had established Israel in the Promised Land. 
and Israel became a mighty nation. But its kings and people fell into idolatry. So God judged Israel and split it into two kingdoms. But that judgment didn't cause people to repent. They just kept on in idolatry for centuries. And so God was not happy with them. He was angry. And yet God was patient. He didn't just obliterate his people with wrath. Instead, he reached out to them again and again and again, just like he does with us. He disciplined them repeatedly to try to get their attention. And he called on them to repent by the words of his prophets. 2 Kings 17 verse 11 says, The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. The people would not repent, so judgment fell. God warned in Leviticus 18, You shall keep my statutes and my rules, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. And after 250 years of continuous evil, indeed, God expelled the northern kingdom of Israel from its land. Those people were taken as slaves and deported by the Assyrian Empire, leaving only the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, do you think this demonstration of God's judgment caused Judah to repent? Nope. They doubled down on their sins. And so judgment came for them too. Jeremiah 20, verse 4, God says, I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came, and we read in 2 Chronicles 36, 16, that he killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the king, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword and they became servants until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So Jerusalem fell, the temple was burned, many Jews were killed, and the rest were captured and deported as slaves. And in this, God showed himself to be mighty and mightily faithful to his word. God had promised judgment for unrepentant sin, and he delivered on every word of it. So the land did vomit out the Jews, and Jerusalem was utterly destroyed in this shocking disaster. Could any people ever recover from this calamity? Yes, because God is not only sovereign and righteous, He is also kind, good, and faithful. And just as God decreed this disaster, He had also promised that in time, the Jews would be restored. The exiles would return from their captivity and live again in their land. Jeremiah 29, verse 10, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. Jeremiah says, 70 years, and then there will be restoration. What's more? God prophesied through Isaiah precisely how this restoration would begin to happen in an amazing prophecy in which God gives the very name of the man who is going to liberate the Jews more than a century before he was born. Isaiah 44, verse 28. God says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. For the sake of Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I equip you, though you do not know me. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, says the Lord of hosts. Now, wouldn't you know it? 150 years after that prophecy was given... Seventy years after Judah fell under Babylon's thumb, lo and behold, there was a Persian king named Cyrus. And he destroyed the Babylonian Empire. And quite suddenly, a man named Cyrus had total authority over the, Israel's, the Israelite exiles living in Babylon. And that's where the book of Ezra begins. So let's now see what this Cyrus does in Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So here's the man with the prophesied name living at the prophesied time with the prophesied authority over the Jews. And what does he do? He fulfills the prophecy. He says the Jews can go home and rebuild their temple, just like God said. What a coincidence. Of course, this is no coincidence at all. And that's the first thing we need to see here. God is sovereign. God is over all things. God has a plan. God is in control. Now, it seemed like Cyrus was in control. He was the most powerful guy on earth. He was the one that sent the Jews home. But why did he do it? Well, we're told here. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. God was primarily responsible for this deliverance. Now, what's even more remarkable here is that Cyrus is not a believer. That might surprise you when you read this decree. Because the decree sounds like Cyrus is a believer, right? He says, the Lord is the God of heaven and he's helping the Jews. But Cyrus is not a believer. And we know that. Because in Isaiah 45, God twice says explicitly, Cyrus does not know me. Moreover, archaeology testifies that Cyrus, like all Persians of this period, believed in the Zoroastrian religion. So if Cyrus wasn't a believer, why in the world would he fulfill this prophecy? Because when Persia conquered Babylon, 
The Persians did not inherit only a vast number of captive Jews. There were captives from many nations who had all been forcibly repopulated by the Babylonians. And the Persians viewed these people as a security risk and a big expense. And so they had a policy. Let's send them home. And let's make sure they stay loyal. Let's send them home with money and tell them to rebuild their own native religions. About 10 years ago, downtown at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Houston, there was a big exhibit, the Cyrus Cylinder. It was another decree, just like this one we read in, about in Ezra 1. But it wasn't about rebuilding the Jewish religion. It was saying from Cyrus, hey, Babylonians, you rebuild your religion too. See, Cyrus isn't a believer. He is a cynical politician using religious rhetoric to endear himself to people. And that's a tactic we still see today, isn't it? But this policy that Cyrus devised for worldly reasons was in fact something stirred up by God. That God used for his own purposes to fulfill his word. And so what we learn here, friends, is God is more powerful than the most powerful man on earth. And God can turn even the most powerful man on earth in any way that God desires so that God might, through him, accomplish his purposes for good or for bad for us. And so that's why Cyrus liberated the Jews and urged them to rebuild the temple. But God did more than that. God also used Cyrus to equip the Jews to accomplish the purpose he was sending them out to achieve. Cyrus here says to the people living around the Jews, hey, give the Jews some money so that as they go home, they're not going home empty-handed. Give them gold and silver. This is a lot like what happened in the Exodus, right? When the Israelites left Egypt, their neighbors gave them gold and silver. Back pay for their slavery. Here too, the Jews were compensated and supported in this second Exodus by their neighbors. Now, what I want you to see here is all of this is not accidental. This is not coincidental. No, friends, God is at work directing all things in line with his plans. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Ephesians 1 tells us what that will is. A plan for the fullness of time to unite in Christ things in heaven and things on earth. See, friends, history has a direction. It's going somewhere. Someday everything is going to be brought before Jesus to either be brought into the new creation or be condemned by him. Everything is heading towards Jesus for the consummation. And God is at work bringing all things towards that consummation. All things vast and small. Nothing surprises God. Nothing happens in this world or in our lives without his permission. That's true for good things and bad things. For big things and small things. Here we're talking about the affairs of nations. We could think about our world today. Wars and pandemics and economic trends. And God's sovereign over all that. It's also true about very small events in our world. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says God is totally sovereign over something like the, over the lifespan of every bird. Over how many hairs you have on your head. If God exercises absolute control about your baldness, then friends realize God has absolute control over everything else that happens in this world. The big events and every event that you face in life. 
Now, please understand, I'm not telling you you're only going to face pleasant experiences. Bad things happened to the Old Testament prophets. Bad things happened to the apostles. Bad things happened to Jesus while he walked the earth. Remember Job? He was a righteous man. He lost everything. And he cried out to God for answers, and God didn't give him any. Instead, God showed Job his sovereign power about everything. And what Job realized was, wow, God is operating on a whole other level. I can't even begin to imagine what God is doing. And so Job understood that what he needed to do was trust God no matter what happens. And friends, that's what we need to do too. God's in control. He is at work. He is bringing his good purposes to pass in our lives through every event we encounter, good and bad. So we need to acknowledge God's sovereignty and trust him. But we learn something else here, which is that one of the things God wields his power to do is bring his word to pass. God is faithful to his promises. He told the Israelites, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years, and then you're going to return from exile. That would have seemed totally outlandish when it was said, but it came totally true. Because God always stands by his word. God said in Jeremiah 1.12, I am watching over my word to perform it. Okay, well, what promises has God made to us? Romans 8.28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Say, okay, well, things are going to work out for good. Well, hey, let's keep reading. What is the good God is going to bring about? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what God is doing. Believing friend, you have been chosen by the Almighty to be conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus died for your sins so that he might bring you into his own glory. Just like God delivered Israel in the first exodus from Egypt. Just like God delivered the Jews from slavery in the second exodus from Babylon. God is bringing about a third exodus. He has set believers free from slavery to sin and death. He is bringing us into his new land, the new creation we read about. The dwelling place of God is with man, Revelation 21 promises. He will dwell with them. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Believer, that is God's promise to us. That in this life, whatever we're going through, we are being made ready for that eternal glory. And that's a comfort. Because just as God fulfilled all his promises to the exiled Israelites, he's made us better promises and he will fulfill all of them to us too. Friends, we can rest in God's faithfulness. We can know his word will prove true. We will reign with Christ forever. And before then, his loving care is certain and he will guide us and give us peace. Friends, we've got to hold on to these truths in this new year, no matter what we encounter. But this now brings us to our second point, which is we've got to respond to God with faith and faithfulness. Look at Ezra 1, beginning in verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with good, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. 
Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. God isn't done working here just because Cyrus has issued his decree. He is still at work. He is, again, stirring up the spirits this time of faithful Jews. Now, Jeremiah had encouraged the exiled Jews to accept they were going to be in Babylon a long time. He told them, plant gardens and settle down. You're going to be here for decades. And that's what they did. And so by the time Cyrus issued this decree, there was now a thriving Jewish community in Babylon. And most Jews in Babylon seemed content to stay there. They had happy lives. They had peace. They had invented the synagogue as a way of preserving their religious identity. They didn't see a need to go back to Jerusalem or rebuild the temple or reinstitute the sacrificial system required by the law. They thought they could worship God well enough in their own way, you know. The way he had prescribed that didn't matter to them. So most Jews did not go home. But some did. Because God had spoken about this day in Isaiah 48:20 and commanded them, Go forth from Babylon! Flee from the Chaldeans! Declare with the sound of joyful shouting, The Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. God wanted His people to go home. And even though it would be hard to leave the new life they had built in Babylon and make that long trek across the desert. Some Jews chose to endure this hardship for the sake of God. And God honored their faith. We see that here in the fact that they were given the gold and silver that Cyrus decreed they should be given. And more than that, Cyrus returned to them the vessels which had been stolen from the Jerusalem temple by the Babylonians. And so those who made this trek of faith did not go empty-handed. And so as the returning exiles took this tremendous step of faith, God met their needs. He enabled them to fulfill what he called them to. Now I want you to see here that what's happening in this passage is just like something happened centuries earlier when God called Abraham and said, get up and go to Canaan. Here again, God is saying to his people in Babylon, get up and go to Canaan. And there's just two ways to respond to God's word there, with belief or unbelief. Unbelief meant staying put. Belief meant taking God at his word, getting up and going. Some Jews responded with belief. Well, what about us today, friends? What is God's word to us? It's not to get up and go to Canaan. John 6, 28, people asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. God's word to us today is that we need to believe in Jesus, who is God and man, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And friends, we need that word because we are all sinners by nature and choice. We are born separated from God. We are born as God's enemies, and if things don't change, we will face God's eternal condemnation. But Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says in Acts 17, God now commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Friends, Jesus who died for our sins is risen and he is returning to this earth to judge each of us. And if we want to survive that judgment, we must repent. We must have a change of mind, a change of allegiance. We all start off living lives governed by self and sin, just doing whatever we want when we want. We've got to turn aside from that old life by turning to Jesus in faith, believing he is who he said he was, God in the flesh, believing that he died to pay the penalty for our sins, believing that he is indeed risen from the dead. That is God's word for each of us today. We need to turn to Jesus and entrust ourselves to Jesus. And so just like what we see here in Ezra, what God wants is for us to respond to his word in faith. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. In fact, faith is the only way we can be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, you can't be saved by giving a big financial donation or by church membership or by doing some good works, even good works like baptism or taking communion. No, we are saved only by God's grace, His unearned gift, and we receive that gift through repentant faith. Friends, we must respond to God's word to us, the gospel, in faith. But I want you to know faith isn't just something we do once to be saved. No, faith, dependent trust on God, is the operating principle for the Christian life. That's why four times the Bible tells us the righteous will live by faith. Believing, friends, every day we've got to face with faith, not with fear and not with arrogance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, be of good courage. He explains because we walk by faith and not by sight. And one of the important words there is walk. Friends, I think very often when we talk about spiritual things, we get the idea that we're supposed to be super passive, that we should be inactive. And that's because we cherish the truth that we're not saved by works. And indeed, friends, we are saved only by God's grace through faith. But real faith is not inert. It leads to action. Just like we see in Ezra, faith makes God's people get up and go. It's unbelief that leaves us on the couch. And yet I hear Christians so often saying things like, let go and let God. Friends, if you let go, the world's taking the wheel. It's not God. God's plan for our spiritual lives does not entail us sitting around doing nothing. God wants us to war against personal sin. God wants us to strive towards godliness. That's why Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, let us strive to enter God's rest. Or Hebrews 12, 14, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Striving is a very active term. It means pursuing, taking intentional steps of faith towards growth. Not just sitting around hoping things are going to take care of themselves. In the same way, over the years, I have seen Christians faced with important decisions paralyzed by an incorrect notion of piety. They'll face a big decision and they'll pray. Amen. You should always pray about big decisions. But then they just sit there and they don't do anything. And they say, well, I'm just patiently waiting on the Lord. Well, friends, patiently waiting on the Lord is good. 
But patiently waiting on the Lord doesn't mean that we then check out of life until God supernaturally solves all of our problems. Friends, God orders our steps not while we're sitting on the couch, but while we are engaged with life. God answers our prayers as we take steps of faith. That's usually when we'll notice Him changing circumstances around us. By all means, I want you to pray. But then trust God, get up and take a step in some direction, expecting He's actually going to answer your prayer. I remember back when I was thinking about going to seminary. I sat around week after week, month after month, waiting for God to give me some kind of a sign. I guess I really needed seminary because I didn't have any theological ideas that were correct. Um, What God really wanted me to do was take some action, take a step of faith, do something rather than nothing. Because faith is an active sort of thing. And friend, what I want to tell you today is if you are paralyzed by an important decision, you need to know sometimes it's okay to just take a step in some direction. Yes, humbly commit your situation to God. Yes, search the scriptures and obey them. Yes, consider your circumstances and good counsel and think about maybe what they're telling you about God's will. But when you think you know what you should do, or if you've done all that and you genuinely have no idea, Take a step of faith in some godly direction. Trust in God, knowing that if you're doing the right thing, it's going to become clear. And if you aren't, God is certainly able to check you back into place where you need to be. And friends, taking a step of faith is exactly what these returning Jews did. And God honored it. And look at the last words of chapter 1. The exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. God fulfilled His purposes in them. Now we come to chapter 2. You say, oh man, this is going to be a long sermon. Well, no, chapter 2 is a big list of of names, and we're not going to read all of them. But this is Scripture, and it's good for us to understand what this is saying. Ezra 2, 1 says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now, this list shows us that the people who returned to Jerusalem were the descendants of those taken into exile. This shows us God was faithful. He made good on His word to restore those taken captive. But this list serves another function too. This shows us that God knows who responds to Him in faith and obedience. Chapter 2 is a register of the faithful. It names those who took God at His word and made this hard journey back to Jerusalem. And this list is so important to God, He repeats it again later in the Scriptures, in Nehemiah chapter 7. Clearly, God took special note of these people. And notice that it's not just the names of the leaders that are recorded here. right? Sometimes we think, oh, only, only important people's names live on on buildings or whatever. Man, God remembers the followers too. God knows all those who live by faith. That was true then and it's true now. Believing, friends, he has your name written down somewhere. Revelation speaks about another register of the faithful, the Lamb's Book of Life, the list of all those who are saved. And we're told that list was written from before the foundation of the world. Before you existed, God knew and intended and purposed your salvation. And, friend, that means he's not going to lose any of us. And that should be an encouragement to us. Moreover, be encouraged by the truth of Hebrews 11. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and rewards those who seek Him. Sometimes we get this view of God that He's only just handing out punishment. God rewards the life of faith. 
But while God noticed those who truly belonged to him and recorded their names here, he also took note of some other people. There were some folks who made this trip that shouldn't have because they weren't really part of God's people. We see that at the end of this list. There was a background check after they got to Jerusalem to figure out who was really a Jew. Could you produce proof that showed you belonged? And in verses 59 and 60 of chapter 2, we find people who didn't really belong to Israel. Oh, they made that long trek through the desert, but in the end they didn't inherit the promises. And friends, we see stuff like that in every church in America today. There are those who march alongside real believers through the journey of life. Maybe they think they're real believers. They certainly hope to collect on the promises of God, but they never really repented. They never really turned from their old lives of sin. They never really believed the gospel. So they aren't really heirs. And these are the folks Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we already talked about what God's will was, that we should repentantly believe the gospel. And so just as Israel separated the true people of God from the imposters here, Jesus is going to separate those who truly belong to him from those who are the imposters on the last day. And friend, if you say, you're sitting here today and you say, I'm a Christian, I want you to hear me on this. This is why we are given the exhortation in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The scripture tells us what the believing life looks like. 1 John says there's three characteristics. A true love for fellow believers, holding true doctrine, and a life that tries to obey God's word. Does that sound like you? Or not? The stakes are just so high. We are literally talking here about heaven and hell. I know it's easy to sit there and say, yeah, yeah, Ben, whatever, I'm saved. I don't want to hear this. Man, the Bible gives us these warnings over and over again for a reason. There's something like 44 warning passages in the New Testament. Take them seriously. I really want you to ask yourself here, every one of us right now, does your life give good evidence that you belong to Jesus? Or does your life honestly testify that maybe you don't? And if you look at your life and you say, hey, this doesn't sound like what the Bible says a believing life should look like, man, draw near to God through Jesus. Repent and believe. Because the stakes are just so high. And on the last day, I don't want any of us to get there thinking, I knew Jesus just to find out we really didn't. And that's going to happen to some people. May it not happen to any of us. There's one last thing we see in chapter 2. Not just the faith of the returning exiles, but also their faithfulness. Can you imagine after weeks of going through the desert with this big group of people, you get there and then suddenly it's time to check backgrounds? That'd be pretty unpleasant, right? Especially for those folks that find out, hey, you don't have the credentials. But God's people did this because it was the right and necessary thing to do. Because they were faithful to the Lord. We find another similar situation in verses 61 to 63. There were Jews who returned to the promised land who claimed to belong to the priestly family who had no evidence to support their claim. Verse 61, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. These folks were excluded from the priesthood until such time as God could be consulted through the casting of lots to figure out whether they were really priests or not. Say, so what's the big deal here? 
God had rules about who could be a priest. They had to be descended from Aaron. And the returning Jews policed this. They cared about what God said, and they enforced it, even when it was difficult, even when it was unpleasant, because they really believed God meant what he said, because they were really concerned about communal purity, and they didn't want to taint this new beginning on a bad foot by disobeying God. Now, what's the application? Friends, we need to be marked by faithfulness to God's word, and that starts in our own lives. We need to take God's word seriously, and that means we need to separate ourselves from some things. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Friends, some things just don't mix with the Christian life. You know, we often quote these verses to tell single believers not to date or marry unbelievers. Let me say here, if you claim to be a believer, you have no reason to be romantically mixing with an unbeliever. Because the scripture says, no matter what you think or what you feel, if you really belong to Christ, you have absolutely nothing in common with an unbeliever that is real or lasting, period. But these verses have more application than that. Friend, what things are you doing in your life that you know is drawing you away from Christ and into sin? What sinful lifestyles or habits do you really just not want to put to death? What temptations do you really like flirting with? Where do you not want to obey? 2 Timothy 2.19 says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Friends, if we know Christ or we claim Christ, we need to depart from iniquity individually, but also corporately. And sometimes as a church, that means we have to do the hard thing that Israel does in this passage. The thing required by Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, which tell us sometimes we have to remove someone from church membership because they decide they would rather enjoy the false pleasures of unrepentant sin than obey the good word of God. That is not a fun thing to do. But God said we have to do it. And the question is, are we going to be like the returning exiles here and obey God's word or not? Obedience is hard, especially when it's painful and messy. But friends, if we are people of faith and if this is to be a church of faith, we must walk in faithfulness to this command too. So we've got to respond to God with faith and faithfulness. But this brings us to our last point. We've got to prioritize worship. In this passage, worship was the main priority for these faithful Israelites. Back in chapter 1, we're told God stirred them up. Not to go back and form a nation. Not to go back and reclaim their lost lands. No, they went back to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. These folks had some semblance of religious community in Babylon. They had the synagogue and they heard the scripture read and they sang and they prayed. But what God's word at that time required was animal sacrifice. And they wanted to see God's worship restored. And so at the end of chapter 2, before the Jews all split up and went back to their homelands, we read, verse 68, Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest's garments. 
There was generous giving to rebuild the temple. You know, starting off in a new land, that money could have gone a long way. Build a nice house, start a business. These people chose to sacrificially give to the rebuilding of the temple because they valued God's worship first. So these people worshiped in the way Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is worship through giving, and that's an important way to worship God, and that's something we should do. But it's not the only thing. Look at now at chapter 3. Even though the returning Jews split up and returned to their homelands, verse 1, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. The seventh month is the holiest month in the Jewish calendar. It has three religious holidays, and the first was Jewish New Year. And on the New Year, the whole country assembled. Why? Verse 2, Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, that's the high priest, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And it continues talking about all the different offerings that they offered, and that they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. They're doing what is written. Israel's first priority was to reestablish the altar so that they might start sacrificing again, which is what God required. And they started observing the religious calendar that God had given them as well. They put God's worship first. They didn't say, well, you know, it's not convenient for me to have to go down to Jerusalem for a week three times a year. I've got better things to do. No, they went. Because they understood God mattered most. And when they assembled for worship, they did what God told them to, not what made them happy. This is a good start, and they kept it up. After a few months, the people went further. They had an altar, but they hadn't yet started building the temple. Verse 7 tells us they got the stuff together they needed to build the temple. And verse 8, now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, made a beginning. Here it is. They're going to start building. Verse 10, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they, they had seen the, the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is how important worship was for these people. The old sobbed as they remembered the glories of the destroyed temple. The young rejoiced as the new temple began to be rebuilt. Their hearts were in it. And what do they do? They gather, and the psalms are sung. A glorious celebration of God. What Hebrews 13 calls the sacrifice of praise. That's worship, friends corporate worship. Today, we also are to collectively worship the people of God. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, unlike ancient Israel, we don't have a choir of professional musicians today. Friends, we are the choir, for better or worse. We all are to sing to God, and we're singing to one another when we gather. Our collective voices are praising God and encouraging each other in the truths of the songs. That's why it's so important we sing theologically true, rich songs. Because on your deathbed, you don't want to be sitting there thinking about some song that could have been sung to a boyfriend on pop radio and pretend it had anything to do with Jesus. You want to be singing the truths of the gospel. We need to sing real, true songs. And when we, we're here and we're singing true songs, that is encouraging one another. And it is encouraging each other to remember the gospel and persevere in the faith. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2 says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. We are to do corporate prayer. And 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. We're to hear the Scripture read and explained, and we're to be exhorted, we're to be challenged and confronted by it and told to amend our lives. Friends, we are to gather for corporate worship. And since the early days of the faith, believers have done this weekly on Sunday, the day of the resurrection. Friends, we should gather together with regularity. Now, of course, there will be times when we cannot and even should not gather. Friend, if you are sick, please watch the live stream. If you're away on vacation, we understand. But friends, when there isn't a good reason, like being sick or being away, it should be our regular practice to gather together with God's people to worship when we can, at least on Sundays. And with all of the love in the world, I think a lot of us could do better about trying to gather together on Wednesdays or some of our other activities. And if that's not your regular habit, I want to ask you why. What is it that you have prioritized over corporate worship? And is that appropriate for someone who names the name of Christ? Now, I recognize we're all here on New Year's Eve, so maybe I'm preaching to the wrong section today. But consider these things, honestly. And we want you here not just because we like keeping you busy and not just because we're worried about numbers. Friends, gathering with believers is an important part of God's plan for our spiritual development. And if we're not gathering together, that shows that something's wrong with, with where we are. In fact, this is the one piece of evidence the author of the Hebrews points to when he tells his readers, hey, I can tell something's wrong in your church. Hebrews 10, 24, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Folks were not meeting together. They were depriving themselves of the encouragement they needed in the spiritual life, and that was imperiling them. It was making things dangerous for them, spiritually. Because this is one of the ways God keeps us on the right path, is meeting together. And at the same time, when you don't come, you are robbing your brothers and sisters of your encouraging voice and your own service, which you do by the use of your spiritual gifts. So brothers and sisters, let us commit ourselves, not in some foolish New Year's resolution. Let us take a step of faith and obedience and commit ourselves to meeting together regularly. Let corporate worship be a priority in your life as an expression of faith and faithfulness. And when we gather, let's remember, we're not here for entertainment 
or to amuse ourselves. We're here to do what God has commanded us to do. Those things we talked about a minute ago, including the taking of communion, by which we remember Jesus. He has commanded us to remember him in this way. But lastly, I want you to know, God doesn't just want your, hour, your hearts for an hour a week at congregation of worship. He does want that. And some of us won't even give him that. But he wants more than that. Because the New Testament tells us ultimately the temple we worship at now is not a building. It is the person of Jesus, according to John 2. And how do we worship Jesus? What is the appropriate way to worship Jesus? Romans 12 tells us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Jesus gave all for us. How will we respond to him? What he tells us to do is give all of us back to him. All our actions, all our desires, all our thoughts, all the time should be lived with the the thought, how am I pleasing Christ in this moment? That starts with the other kinds of worship we just talked about. Corporate worship and giving worship and singing praise and, and all of those things. But ultimately, we are to love God, Jesus says, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, in a total way. That is what God desires from us, that we hold nothing back and always be about his business wherever we find ourselves. And this is to be our highest priority in life, to please Jesus. So let us give him our attention. Let us spend time each day thinking or reading or hearing his word. Let us give him our adoration and sing and pray to him with regularity. Let us trust him with our finances by giving to his cause sacrificially. Let us be willing to give him our reputation. Friends, as you evangelize or live with integrity, the world's going to hate you. Be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Let us give him our allegiance and war against personal sin. Let us trust him with our families and our lives and our futures. So friends, as we enter this new year, let us remember this great example of the returning exiles and what their story teaches us. That no matter what happens, we can trust God because he is sovereign and faithful. That we should respond to him with faith and faithfulness. And that means we need to prioritize worship. We need to live for God in every aspect of our lives. So let us consider how in this year we can better represent Jesus and better honor him in our lives and with our time and with our service and with all we have. And friends, as we meditate on these truths and respond to them with faith and obedience, we will see life change. We will grow. We will be increasingly conformed to Christ's image and we will please the Lord. And so as Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you.